0: No. <laughs> As we come to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we've divided the text up this morning to include the end of 1 Corinthians 12, and we stopped last week intentionally before we got all the way to the end, because it's important for you to understand the context in which 1 Corinthians 13 falls. 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of a famous passage, and in fact, if you've ever been to a wedding, it's entirely possible you've heard somebody read a little chunk out of the middle of 1 Corinthians 13, and because of that, because of that familiarity, it is possible sometimes to think like, oh, there's a place in 1 Corinthians where God tells us how husbands and wives are supposed to treat one another, right? It can sort of be equated with romantic love, which, by the way, is not at all Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13. In the context of what he's telling us and in the context of the larger uh, emphasis that he's making across the entirety of the book, uh, this love that he's talking about, while it certainly does relate to marital relationships and personal relationships, he's actually saying something really essential and vital not for couples, but for the body of Christ, for the gathered church of the Lord Jesus, for all of us in this room, and for those who were in the church of Corinth. So we've tied it to the end of 1 Corinthians 12. Remember, this is an epistle, so when it was first written, there were no chapter divisions, there were no verse markers. There was one long flow of thought, and I want you to be able to see this flow of thought. If you were with us in our study over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that Paul has been, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians 12 at the top, he's been talking about the beauty and the necessity, the absolute vitality of a diverse body, right, that empowered by the Holy Spirit, each and every one of us have different gifts, that no two of us are the same, that we're all equipped and empowered in different ways, and there's real beauty when we recognize that there's a place for us to come together and put Jesus on display In the breadth of who we are, there is unity and diversity. He he says in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, the the ear shouldn't feel bad that it isn't an eye. And the hand should never say to the foot, I don't need you. He's already made the case that God equips us all differently. That he gives us different gifts. But that that's part of the beauty of who we are. Now as he gets to the end of 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and he's he's already, I think, got in sight what we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 14. I don't want to give too much of this away because we'll be there next week. But in 1 Corinthians 14, he's going to make the point that some of these gifts we can tend to emphasize, but to our own detriment. He's going to to show the difference between speaking in tongues and prophecy in 14, and he's going to say both of these are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives, but we might say that the gift of prophecy is more important than the gift of tongues, because the gift of prophecy is the kind of thing that everyone can understand, and it draws all people to a knowledge of God and to repentance. Therefore, we might prioritize that. Knowing that he's headed to that in 1 Corinthians 14, there is this little digression here at the end of 12. And this is the way it works. He says this uh, in verse 27. He says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Okay, let's just stop and take that in. He's painted this beautiful picture of the diversity of the body, of the way the Holy Spirit equips all of us, and he wants to make it clear that that isn't just some objective theological truth, right? That it isn't just some outside thing that you need to know, that the Holy Spirit empowers people in diverse and different ways with different giftings. Now he's bringing it in really focused to the church at Corinth and by extension to us and saying, hey, I'm talking about you. Right? I'm not talking about some hypothetical thing or some objective thing off in outer space. I'm talking about the church at Corinth. I'm talking about Fullerton Free Church at the corner of Baston Cherry and Brea. You are Christ's body. And the reason why he emphasizes that so adamantly is that that understanding that we are the body of Christ is vital to the argument he's going to make in the chapter that follows. You see, theologians, the apostles, the writer here, Paul, understood that being the body of Christ meant that what we do with our gifts had to be done in the same spirit and in the same way of Christ, if you will. And we'll see that here in a second. But he's saying to them, it's important that you understand, I'm talking about you. You are Christ's body. You know, sometimes people will say... Well, I wish I could have lived you know, during the time when Jesus was walking the earth. It would have been so helpful to my faith if I could have just sat across a table from him or if I could have witnessed some of the miracles that he performed when he was physically present. I want you to understand that from a theological standpoint, the Bible would assert that the body of Jesus is not gone. The body of Jesus is present in 2023. The body of Jesus does walk the earth in 2023. And the way that happens is with us. We are his body. That's what Paul's saying. It's you. I'm talking about you. You are the body of Christ. Jesus is present in this city. He's present because we're here. He left his body. In fact, when Paul asserts this, he's asserting something that everyone understood from the mouth of Jesus himself, that as the body of Christ, our mission and method is exactly the same as Jesus. So you might remember this, but uh, on Easter night, right? In John 20, 21, the day of the resurrection, that evening, all of the disciples are gathered in an upper room, kind of huddling together, and Jesus busts into that gathering, and he says in verse 21 of John 20, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus says to them in no uncertain terms, God sent me here with a mission. And my mission was that I would lay down my life for the good of other people. And now I'm looking at you, all of my disciples, he says. And I'm telling you, my mission is your mission. The method and and the the process by which I was sent, I'm passing on to you. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. So what does that mean for the gathered assembly of Christians? It means that we are called to live our lives for the glory of God and the good of others. To be Jesus' hands and feet, if you will, on the earth. Similarly, in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and following, and talking about the hierarchical nature of the way the Gentiles organize themselves, he says that's what the Gentiles do, but in verse 43 of Mark 10, Jesus says, "'It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many.'" The understanding was that as the body of Christ, we would have this same motivation and this same heart that hasn't come to be served, but rather to serve. That's who Jesus says we're supposed to be. So in 1 Corinthians 12, after he's just laid out all of these spiritual gifts and the way the thing is organized and that everyone is interdependent and that we need one another, he gives us a warning. And the warning is, if you start to get excited about your particular gifts, or if you start to get discouraged about your particular gifts... If you have an inclination to look across the aisle and go, well, I think that the guy who has this gift or the woman who has that gift is actually more important than these others. He's already flat out said, don't do that. But now he says there's a real danger to your community because you can become so preoccupied with your own individual pursuits, your own individual gifts, your own individual appointment, your own individual empowerment, that you miss the heart of Jesus, which wasn't to be served, but rather was to serve. So he makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians 12 again. He says, You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Well, the the, the rhetorical question there implies there's an implied no. No, we're not all prophets. We don't all speak in tongues. We're diverse. He's already said that. But what he's laying out, and some people will say that he's laying out a hierarchy here. When he says first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then he goes in to talk about charismatic gifts, and then he talks about gifts of administration and helping. Some people will say, well, what he's given us there is a hierarchy of what's most important, right? Apostles most important, then prophets, then teachers. I don't think he's doing that because that would be counter to his entire argument in the book. He's already at length said to us that everybody's necessary and everybody's important. So I don't think he's saying apostles are most important and the people who are helping and doing administration are the least important, or even more, he says those those who speak in tongues are least important. I don't think he's giving us hierarchy. That would be counter to his point. I think what he's saying is that in the establishment of the church, it began with the apostles first. First, the apostles, those were the ones who saw the resurrected Jesus. They walked and talked with him. They were with him. And then the prophets who came, declaring the truth of a resurrected Christ. And then the teachers who would establish churches and would lead people in discipleship. be showing a, a flow of the way in which the church was established. I think in order to emphasize order rather than hierarchy, which would be counter to his, to his point. But he gets to the end here and he says... But you should you should actually yearn for or earnestly desire verse thirty one the higher gifts. That's a phrase that has some interpretive difficulties, right? There's some interpretive difficulties. It says you should desire the higher gifts. Well, if he doesn't believe in hierarchy and he believes in interdependence and necessity, then why would he say yearn for the higher gifts? Some will say, some will say that if what he's actually doing there is uh, is a, a, an imperative, right? That that he's actually saying to them. Um, You you need to prioritize the things that establish and move the ball down the field, basically. But the way the phrase is written, it could also be indicative. I don't want to get into a bunch of language stuff. What he might be saying to them, the way it's written, could easily be interpreted as saying, you yourselves have established a hierarchy and you find yourselves yearning for what you perceive to be the most important. But I want to show you there's a different way, right? Now, I don't know which of those it is. The interpreters are kind of split on it. But what I want you to see is that either way, what he says to them at the end of 12 is, there are these gifts that God has given, but there's a way in which they have to be exercised. There's a way in which they have to be exercised. The emphasis for us in 13, as we study it today, is all about the way. It's not about whether or not we have gifts. It's not about whether or not God is the one who gives those gifts. It's not about whether they're diverse. We can have some argument about his hierarchy or whatever here, but the bottom line is that Paul's concern for the church at Corinth is that they would become so preoccupied with the gifts that they would miss the way in which the gifts are meant to be exercised. I'll give you a, if that feels confusing, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, When my daughter was like five years old, my daughter Lily, I was uh, snuggled up with her on the couch. I've told some of you this story before, but I'm snuggled up with her on the couch and And she looks over at me and just, I don't know, we're watching TV or something. And she looks into my eyes and she goes, Daddy, I love you. And I was like, oh, sweetheart, I love you. And she goes, no, Daddy, I love you more than anything in the world. And I was like, sweet girl, I love you more than anything in the world. She goes, no, Daddy, you don't understand. I love you all the way around the universe and back again. I was like, honey, I love you all the way around the universe and back again. She goes, Daddy, will you marry me? And I'm like, okay, it just got a little creepy. You know what I mean? Like we we turned a corner there. Like there was this affirmation and then it got weird. And so I looked at her and I was like, oh, sweetheart, I love you so much, but daddies don't marry their daughters, at least not in this state. And so that's not like a, that's not a thing we can even really talk about, you know? I said, and besides all of that, you know what? Daddy's already married to mommy and God has set it up so that daddy and mommy would only ever be married to each other forever. Like it's just gonna be her and me that I'm married to. But someday you're gonna grow up and you're gonna meet a wonderful man and you'll fall in love with him and you guys will get married and he'll be a part of our family and we'll all love each other. And it will be exactly what you're describing. All of us loving each other, but you with your own husband. And you guys, her lip starts to quiver and her eyes filled up with tears. And she goes, you don't love me. And I was like, no, I do. I do. I really do. I really love you, but we can't get married. We can't talk, you know, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm panicked. Right? So I I think to myself, I just have to get out of this. So I said to her, look, you're five. We can't get married when you're five. Anyway, we'll talk about it again when you're 18. And she goes, okay. And she got down on my lap and she left. So I had solved it for the moment, but I hadn't really solved it. You know what I'm saying? And I got worried that she would circle back to my wife in a separate conversation and be like, Dad says we're going to get married when I turn 18, which would be bad for me, right? <clears throat> so I go to my wife, and I said, hey, I just want you to know I had a kind of a cute but also a weird conversation with, my, with Lily this morning where she was telling me she loved me, and then she asked me to marry her, and I didn't know what to do, and I panicked, and I told her we'd talk about it later, but I have no intention of marrying her, you know? <clears throat> My wife goes, "Uh, don't worry about it. I'll talk to her. I'll talk to Lily. So my wife, the next day, goes into Lily's room, and she's on the floor playing with her dolls or whatever, and uh, my wife sits down with her, and she says, Lily, I heard that you and Daddy had kind of a funny conversation about getting married yesterday, and she goes, oh yeah, Dad says that we can get married when I turn 18, and my... My, my wife's like, no, you know what, sweetheart, that's so sweet. Your daddy loves you so much, but daddy is already married to mommy and there's only ever just going to be us married to each other. That's the way God designed it. But you know what? Someday you're going to meet somebody and you'll fall in love and he'll be as much a part of our family as you are and we'll all love each other. And my daughter, without even a hesitation, she looks at my wife and she goes, oh don't worry, mom, I was just trying to get dad to buy me a gold ring. <laughs> yeah, let that soak in for a second. Just let that soak in. That's my five-year-old daughter with actual tears and a quivering lip working me for jewelry. That's what that was, right? Make no mistake, I was getting work. Now, that's a good illustration of what looks like affection and is, is motivated by all the wrong things, right? I think we all get that you can do the right things in the wrong way. So at the end of chapter 12, when Paul looks at them and he says, look, there's all these gifts. You are the body of Christ. Don't miss the most excellent way. There's an excellent way to do this, and there is a possibility that you'll get so focused on your individual gifts and your individual preferences that you'll miss what the body of Christ needs to look like. You see, Paul knew what Jesus was like. And when we talk about love, by the way, the New Testament writers almost never talk about love in a romantic way. There are, there are a couple of occasions, but primarily, like, largely, when the Bible in the New Testament talks about love, it almost always talks about love in terms of sacrifice, It's very seldom about a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's very seldom about about emotion. It's almost always about laying yourself down. Why? Because Jesus is our best picture of what love is. And Jesus' love was all about laying himself down for the glory of God and the good of others. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you have a question this morning about what love looks like, according to the Bible, love is that. It's Jesus laying himself down for people who didn't deserve it, who haven't asked for it, who won't necessarily always appreciate it. God shows his love by laying himself down. Similarly, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this phrase, again, we see him tying the, the sacrificial life of Christ and the death of Christ with his affection. How do you know Jesus loves you? What, do you? what will you say about the love of Jesus? It's that it lays itself down. Similarly, again, not to beat this horse, but I, it's important for us to get this. Ephesians 5.2 two. Paul says again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he looks at this church at Corinth and he says, we all have these gifts that are empowered by the spirit and they are beautiful sort of tapestry, but it's possible for you to get your arms around gifts and to think gifts are the whole goal and gifts are not the goal. In fact, you can wrap your arms around gifts in such a way that they actually are rendered worthless and meaningless. That's where he'll go in 1 Corinthians 13. He is warning them not to miss the most excellent way. And church, family, my friends, this is vital for us. There is a vital passage in front of us today, and I know it. We're close to Valentine's Day. I'm so glad this text didn't fall next week because I don't want your familiarity with it or your assumptions about First Corinthians 13 to miss the warning. There is a warning in First Corinthians 13 for us. Don't miss it this morning. He starts like this: First Corinthians 13, verse one. In First Corinthians 13, one. He gives us three different illustrations, an illustration of speech, an illustration of knowledge, and an illustration of action. Here's what he says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think he starts here in 13 talking about tongues because it's already in his mind. He's going to come back to tongues next week when we're in 14, right? The continuation of this passage will be about an emphasis on tongues that doesn't always consider the body. And he says to them, You guys have elevated the speaking of tongues, the tongues of men and angels, to a position of, of power and a position of glory. It seems like an enviable gift. You would all want to have that gift. And he goes, But I can speak in the tongues of men and angels, and if I don't do it in the way of love, if I have no love, then all I'm doing is making a racket. The essence of what he's saying is that, that it becomes worthless, it's just noise. There's nothing to it. Similarly, he goes on, not just about our speech. If our speech is without love, it's pointless and worthless. He says this in two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Just let that soak. Think about how profound what he's saying is. If he has all all knowledge. I mean, in in our society, especially in like church culture, having knowledge is like a big deal, right? We revere people with knowledge. And in fact, we sometimes like to assert that we know things nobody else knows that we don't even know, right? We like feeling like we know some stuff. We like our certainties, right? He says, I could know everything. I could be able to understand all mysteries. I could have prophetic power. He says, I could even have so much faith that I could remove mountains. That's a lot of faith, right? I mean, I feel like in our community, if we had somebody in our community who had so much faith that they could move mountains, we'd be like, this is a great person in our church. He goes, no, no, no. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. You can have all of that stuff. You can know a bunch of stuff. You can have all kinds of power. You can have all kinds of faith if you don't do it in the way of love. It's nothing. If you're taking notes, underline the word nothing. I mean, can you get there with him? It feels weird, doesn't it? Because it seems like Oh no, faith is a big deal. Prophetic power is a big deal. These are are important to us. He goes, yeah, yeah, but only in one context. One context and one context alone. And that's the context of sacrificial love. Otherwise, it's just racket. It's nothing. He not not only talks about speech, he not only talks about knowledge or information, he talks about actions. Look at verse 3. He says, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I mean, we talk all the time about the importance of being sacrificial. I've just been talking about it this morning. And now what he says is, is that you can be sacrificial to the point of laying down your life. You can martyr yourself. And if love isn't the way in which you did it, if it wasn't about love, you gain nothing through it. I just want you to think about how devastating this principle is. Because there is so much that we do that is not done in the way of love. That is not done in the most excellent way. As I've been thinking about it this week and studying and preparing over the last couple of weeks, I just want to give you something here to reflect upon. You guys, when the church, and I mean the church in Corinth, but also us, when the church misses love, the result is religious activity. And that's it. Just religious activity. It's nothing. It's nothing. I think we can all agree that like religious activity for religious activity's sake is not worth your time. You should be home watching football, right? I know there's no football today. Sorry, I'm not a football guy, but I know that's coming up, right? Be home watching whatever it is you watch. He says, if there's no love, it's worthless. So what happens here? If we lose love, if we miss love, if that doesn't become our preeminent priority, if we don't see that that is vital, that it is the most excellent way, according to the apostle Paul, then all of the rest of it is just religious Activity And here's what's funny about religious activity. Religious activity can sometimes be seen in the bigger culture as successful, right? Because if you do religious activity really well, you can get a lot of people to come. And if you do religious activity really well, you can get a lot of people to put money in the offering plate. And if you do religious activity really well, you can get your story on the news. And if you do religious activity really well, you can gain the praise and the honor and the affirmation of the people in your broader culture. You can do all those things and even be perceived as successful in the eyes of the world and the evangelical culture. But if it is not done in the way of love, the Bible says it's nothing, nothing, worthless. So here's the emphasis for us. You guys, let's not miss love, right? Let's not miss love. In the midst of affirming and acknowledging all of our gifts and our diversity and the beauty of how God has made us, let's never lose sight of love because if we lose sight of that, we're just doing a bunch of stuff. In communities like the one at Corinth and others, when a church becomes just about religious activity, but love is not the way, love is not the underlying focus, you end up with a community that is critical, that is man centered. You end up with a community that is bitter and jealous and proud and divided. Why? Because in, in, in the removal of the emphasis on loving God and loving other people, what does it become about? It becomes about me, about what I think, what I know. It becomes about my prophetic power. It becomes about my ability to move mountains. It becomes about my ability to give myself away and lay down. It becomes about, and I don't just mean me, the pastor. I mean you too. It becomes about us. Love is the thing that takes our attention off of ourself and focuses our attention on the other. And if there is no love, then our religious activity becomes a source of division and frustration. It becomes a source of criticism and bitterness and jealousy and envy. That's what he's trying to preclude. We have to to be very careful. We already read it this morning, but the, the biggest danger when a church or a community of Christ followers loses love as the way, like the foundational way in which the gifts are being exercised, when we lose love, the worst thing that happens is that the image of Christ disappears. At best, at worst, the image of Christ is marred, right? Because then we're saying, hey, this is what Jesus is like. He's super hateful like us. This is what Jesus is like, always fighting. This is what Jesus is like, critical of everything. And the moment we do that, we've moved beyond just doing nothing. We've moved to a place where actually what we're doing is blasphemy, right? The image of Christ is marred. The image of Christ is destroyed. And our job as a church, the exciting thing we have in front of us here at the corner of Bass and Cherry and Brea is of repairing the marred image of Christ where it's been distorted by people who don't have love, right? Who do all kinds of religious stuff, but in their own pursuits, we can restore the image of Christ if we get this right. But if we get this wrong, then we contribute to the destruction of the image of Christ in the broader culture, right? We lose his image among us. He says to them, you are this body. He says to us, you are this body. So the next question for, then, uh, for us then, and he goes into this, is What is love? Right? You have to ask that if we're saying, like, everything has to be, love is the baseline. Love is the way that everything is done and exercised. Well, what is love? Fortunately, he gives us this next section, and this is the famous section where he's going to describe for us love. I want you to know from the outset that I think all he's doing here when he gives us a description of love is describing the Trinity. I think he's just telling us what the Trinity is like. Think about our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, existing eternally in mutual love, in mutual sacrifice, in mutual service, in mutual attention. I'm going to read you these middle verses, and I want you to meditate upon our God, Trinitarian God, as it's described. Verse 4. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are patient and kind. God does not envy or boast... The Trinity is not arrogant or rude. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do not insist on their own way. They are not irritable or resentful. The Trinity does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things. When he's trying to put together an idea for us to understand what love is, that it's more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's more than chocolates and roses in a couple of weeks, right? He's saying, look at our God and look at the way our God exists in himself. That's what we're talking about. Patient and kind, bearing with one another, not trying to put forth their own, their, their own agendas, right? That's love. Now, I want to read it to you again, because not only can we see the Trinity in this, but very practically, we see Jesus in it, right? If you're looking for a very practical example of someone who emulates love, again, where are meant to be his body, I'm going to read it to you a second time, and I want you to meditate upon the Lord Jesus. I want you to think about Christ and what we know of him through our study of John, through our study of the scriptures. What do we know of Jesus? Listen to this, verse 4. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anybody disagree? We got any argument in the room? Like somebody's like, oh, I'm not sure Jesus bears all things, right? No, no, of course, of course. This is the Jesus we have seen revealed. This is the Jesus we hope to reveal. He says, you want to know what love is? Look to Jesus. The God of the universe who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing for the sake of the glory of God and the good of others, Right? That's what we're aiming at. That's the target. Now, I want to read it a third time for you, and this is a little harder. Note that as Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 13, as he's describing love, he's also sending a bit of an indictment. There is an indictment that's tucked into this. As I read it this third time, I want you to reflect upon your name. I want you to think about you. I want you to think about you in your circles this week the people that you work with, the people in your neighborhood, people at your dinner table. I want you to ask yourself whether this feels indicative of your approach to your interactions with the people in your sphere. It says this Verse four Darren is patient and kind. Darren does not envy or boast. Darren's not arrogant or rude. Darren does not insist on his own way. Darren is not irritable or resentful. Darren does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Darren bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't get distracted by the fact that I use my name. I, I think we probably could find some objections to the, the reality of that in me. Some of you have heard things about me that would, you know, I would say are not true, but they, they refute some of that. But in my own life, as I look at it, is that true of me all the time? It certainly isn't. Was it true of you? Anybody in here who's got that nailed? No. Here we are. We see the image of Christ. We see Trinitarian love. We understand what the goal is. We understand what the target is, but we fall short of that, don't we? As you think about love being the most excellent way in which all of your other gifts are exercised, you have to recognize that, that you're going to fall short of that target. But that is why it has to be an emphasis. That's why it has to be a target. Because I will tell you, I know many of you, and I will tell you that there are some of you who are really good at this. There are some of you in this room who are incredibly loving and incredibly gracious, incredibly patient and kind, incredibly incredibly uncritical and generous, right? Some of us are better at it than others in this room, and it's because you've practiced, because you've made it important. You've, you've placed that importance in your life the way that Paul places it in this text. I want to read it a fourth time. When I read it the fourth time, I want you to draw. I don't care what name you use. Uh, we all kind of like different names. First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton, if it pleases you, or Evie Free or Fullerton Free. I I don't really care which one you use. But let's just think about the body of Christ made manifest in this corner. The First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton is patient and kind. Evie Free does not envy or boast. Fullerton Free is not arrogant or rude. First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Evie Free does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Fullerton Fullerton Free Church bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What do you think? Sometimes. Is that our reputation in this city? Is that our reputation in this neighborhood? Is that our reputation right in here? I mean, I've I've been here for almost six years and I will say, like, I I don't think we're doing great on this. We have great moments we got work to do. Why? Because all of the rest of it is a waste of time if we don't do it in the way of love, we, we have to make this our target. Now, the great news is I think the, the tide is turning. I think there are some incredible ways in which love is on display and we're growing and changing where love is becoming our focus as opposed to our giftings or opposed to our knowledge or as opposed to our actions, right? It becomes more about the heart of Christ revealed in us. That's our whole emphasis, right? Uh, uh, the the fundraiser for sending kids to camp to hear about Jesus is a good example that we can put a fundraiser like that out there and immediately we've people that are like, yeah, I want people to hear about Jesus. Some of the people that donated to that cause, they won't ever meet those kids. They won't necessarily even hear the particular stories, but what is that? It's someone giving up money. They could have spent on a cheeseburger or on a, I mean, varying amounts of money that's been given. Some people are giving money that they could have used to put a hot tub in their backyard, right? And instead they're sending kids to camp. We, we, I just heard about a thing this week. Uh, we've been doing these Bible studies for um, single moms, for widows for battered women, for for people that are kind of in crisis. And one of the things we've realized in the midst of these Bible studies is that some of these women who are on their own, they have needs in their homes that they can't do themselves. Things like like a broken window or a drain pipe that's come unfixed from the house or whatever. And so just this week, somebody on our team launched a thing that's just, it's just in sort of the seed stage, but a thing called Skillshare. And the whole idea is like, who knows how to fix a drain pipe? Anybody in here know how to fix a drain pipe? We can do this, right? We can do this together for the good of other people and the glory of God. Uh, we started a, a community a couple of weeks ago called the WNDR for Wanderers and Wanderers, right? And the idea of, of WNDR is just a place where people can bring their questions and their doubts without feeling rejected and shunned and shamed, right? We're, we got all kinds of things moving, right? I invited you a couple of weeks ago to come and serve at Hoop Stars. Hoop Stars is our, our basketball program for people with special needs. And some of you have taken me up on that. I've seen lots of your faces there. Some of you still have a couple of weeks to go. But why do I do that? Is it because I just want to run programs? Is it because the elders of this church just want to do churchy things? No, that would be meaningless, like a clashing gong and a clanging cymbal. Why did I invite you to come and help out at Hoopstars? because the way is love. The way is love. All the rest of it is a waste of time. It's worthless if we don't love opportunities to show love to people on the margins and the fringes, people that need help. And, and those are just like four examples of the way I think the tide is turning and we are growing and changing. But you guys, when he wrote this, he wanted us to take it on the chin. He wanted us to drop our name in here and compare ourselves to Jesus and recognize we got work to do. That none of us should be satisfied with our current level of affection for other people. That there's growth necessary for all of us. Even in what Paul says, well, let me just say this as a little bit of a side note. There was a question in our preparation about discernment. When in verse 7 he says, love believes all things. Maybe a little question mark comes up over your head and you're like, what's that supposed to mean? I don't believe all things. Like some things I don't believe, like I'm not, I don't believe the earth is flat or whatever. He's not saying you have to believe all things in that way. That there are certainly some things that are false, some things that are not true. But what he is saying, 7, by the way, is just a gateway to what he says in 8. What he's saying is that in our relationships with one another... We never give up. We sang a song about that with regard to the love of Christ earlier. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. So what should our love for one another be like? Never gives up. Never runs out right when he says love believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things he's not saying you have to believe things that are false he's saying don't give up on the people around you and paul's a perfect person to say that why this isn't the first letter he's written to corinth it's not the first time he's interacted with them about this stuff they are difficult right this is a difficult church he's trying to corral them with his letter they've sent him some questions and he's going no you got that all backwards it's likely that the prophets in the church at corinth were working against paul and you know what paul's not doing He's not giving up. He's not quitting. He's not walking out. Is it difficult for him to shepherd the church at Corinth? You bet it is. Is he still there? Is he still engaging? Absolutely. Why? Because that's what the love of Christ looks like for us. There is no point where Jesus says, I'm done with this person. They're they're beyond the pale. They're not worth the effort. They're too much hassle and too much trouble. Thank God, right? Thank God that he doesn't do that because many of us would be the kind that would be discarded. No, his love doesn't fail and neither should ours. He says... Jesus is patient and kind, and so should we be. And then he finishes in these last few verses, 8 through 13, by talking about the difference between what is eternal and what is temporal. He gives three different illustrations. One of them has to do with uh, maturity. Like, when I was a kid, uh, I thought I knew everything. And then I grew up and I realized I only knew some things. And that's just part of life, right? Right? He uses the illustration of a mirror, and he says when you see a thing in a mirror, and especially in a first century mirror, but when you see a thing in a mirror, uh, you're getting a reflection, but but it's not the same thing as seeing something face to face. There's a difference between partial knowledge and whole knowledge, and that's his third illustration. Sometimes we know things partially, and then later we come to know things fully, and we realize that what we thought was the whole thing wasn't really the whole thing. I think we've all been there. So here's what he says at the end. He says in verse 8, this isn't the end of the book, but the end of this emphasis, he says, love never ends, right? It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, right? I love this. He's going, hey, uh, you're in the church at Corinth and you think you're a big deal because you've got the gift of prophecy. Guess what? There's a day coming when prophecy won't mean anything. We won't need it. That'll go away. There's a day coming when evangelism, nothing. So if that's your gift, praise God right now, but just know that what you do is temporary, right? He says, some of you got yourself puffed up because you've got all this knowledge and you feel like you've solved all the mysteries. Good for you. There's a day coming when there won't be any mysteries and knowledge will be meaningless because we will see him as he is and we will know him. There won't be any more guesswork. There won't be any more, you know, it could mean this, it could be the indicative or it could be the imperative and who knows, right? We'll be done with that. So he says, why spend your time glorifying yourself with things that don't last? There is something, he says, that lasts into eternity. Prophecy goes away, right? Speaking in tongues goes away. He says, prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. It made sense to me then, is what he's saying. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. I realized I didn't really have it all figured out like I thought. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. He's saying, don't spend your time emphasizing and placing a hierarchy on things that are just for now and aren't forever. What you can emphasize right now is something that's forever And that's love. He says, faith, hope, and love remain, or faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest of these is love. Why? Guess what? We're not going to need faith in eternity. Faith is not necessary in eternity. It's necessary to be present with Christ in eternity. But once you're face to face with Jesus, faith will be a non-thing. Same with hope. There will be no need for hope in eternity. Love, love is the thing above all that continues. We will continue in harmony and peace and in love for one another in the spirit of Christ forever and ever and ever. He says, you could be making an investment in that right now, but you're so preoccupied with your gifts and your head coverings and whether you eat this meat or that meat, all you're thinking about is yourself. And as a result, what you've got is a bitter, divided, jealous, envious, broken community. So he says, I want to show you a better way. I want to show you the most excellent way. And it's for all that other stuff to be grounded in love. Love is the glue that holds the whole thing together. It's the apex of the whole thing. My my mom passed away a couple years ago, and uh, my mom, as a hobby, one of the things that she did was she collected Beanie Babies, right? And she uh, she found rare ones, and she you know she'd go to shows sometimes, and, get, and she loved it. She loved it. But uh, I will tell you that now uh, I have crates and crates and crates of Beanie Babies at my house that I can't even pay somebody to take, right? Like I certainly can't sell them. Now, was it worthwhile in the time that she was collecting? Did she find some joy in finding rare ones and finding the ones that she wanted and going out? Yeah, there was joy for her in that. But but it wasn't an investment in something that was lasting. And that's not a criticism of my mom. She's in heaven. I don't want her mad at me today, right? So she doesn't watch. She's in heaven. She got better things to do. Um, It's not a criticism of her, but it's to say in our lives... Is it fun to feel like you know more than other people? You bet it is in the moment. That feels great to lord it over others. Is it, is it fun to like have people go, wow, you're such a great teacher. You're such a great preacher. Wow, you're such a servant. Wow, you laid down your life. Wow, you did this and that. Does that feel good in the moment? Yeah, but, but it's all an investment in stuff that doesn't matter. If you're in this for you, the image of Christ is gone or worse, it's marred. But there is a more excellent way and the more excellent way, the most excellent way is that everything we do, we do out of love for others. The glory of God and the good of others. And in doing that, then guess what happens? Jesus is revealed in us. Jesus is revealed to us and in us and by us when love becomes the fuel for everything else. But when a church loses love, we've also lost the image of Christ. His image is distorted in us. The point this morning is this Fullerton free. Let's not lose love. Let's let love be the thing that is the fuel for us in the days ahead. Not just with the little things I've mentioned, but whatever you're doing in your circle, whatever you do in your businesses, whatever you're doing in your homes and families, on your teams and in your, you know what? I don't know. In your beanie baby collecting, let love be the thing because it's the only way that matters. It's the only way that matters. And Paul is very clear that it is possible for us to miss it and then negate the value of everything we're doing. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us both an excitement about a future shaped by love and also a sense of conviction where appropriate for the ways in which our name can't be placed next to these character traits. Places where our church can't be placed next to these character traits where we've fallen short. Will you grow us by your power? Will you give us a sense of uh, drive and intention about love being the key that unlocks the door to the future for this gathering and for your church in this country and around the world? Will you help us not to lose sight of the way in which these things have to be done? I pray that in Christ's name, amen.